0: Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Wednesday, October 21st. In today's news, Mitch McConnell warns the White House against making a stimulus deal before the election. The pandemic has left 300,000 more people dead in America than would be expected to die in a typical year. And records show President Trump paid more in taxes to the Chinese government than an income tax to the US. But first, the big idea. President Trump lashed out at 60 Minutes host Leslie Stahl and threatened to release their interview after he cut off their conversation at the White House on Tuesday because he did not like the aggressive tone of her questions. The president posted a short clip of a maskless Stahl speaking to two mask-wearing men and wrote that she wasn't wearing a mask in the White House after the interview. A little more than an hour later, Trump threatened to post the audio of their entire interview before the news program is scheduled to air it Sunday night on CBS. Trump and Vice President Pence were meant to do the signature walk-and-talk portion of the 60 Minutes interview together, but after cutting off his sit-down with Stahl, the president did not return for that segment. CBS says the footage of Stahl without a mask that Trump tweeted was taken immediately following the interview with her CBS producers, all of whom had been tested. Now, according to people with knowledge of what happened during the interview, Trump was unhappy that Stahl asked him tough questions regarding his rhetoric about Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer and his handling of the coronavirus pandemic, as well as the sizes of the crowds at his rallies and his disputes with Tony Fauci, the nation's leading infectious disease expert. Stahl also told Trump during the interview that allegations about Joe Biden and Hunter were not verified and that Barack Obama did not spy on the Trump campaign in 2016. Most of her questions were about the coronavirus and his handling of it. Three of Trump's aides, who weren't authorized to speak publicly, told my colleagues Josh Dossi, Colby Itkowitz, and Jeremy Barr that the president overreacted, and one suggested that he's going to end up boosting the ratings of a tough interview. A senior White House official says Trump told aides he wanted to go after Stahl and held a meeting to brainstorm ideas after the session with a group of aides in the Oval Office. This episode gets at just how differently Trump and Joe Biden are preparing for their final debate on Thursday night in Nashville. In a phone interview broadcast on Fox and Friends, Trump lashed out at the moderator, NBC's Kristen Welker, as partisan, and he sought to portray the topics that will be covered during the debate as unfair. They're going to talk about the coronavirus, the economy, race, climate change, and leadership, as well as national security. Trump complained that the Commission on Presidential Debates decided unanimously to mute each candidate's microphone during the opening two minutes of his opponent's remarks. And they're going to do this at the start of all six topics. While some Trump advisors were annoyed about the change, they're keeping their protests to a minimum because they believe that it could actually end up helping the president, who interrupted Biden so often in the first debate that it ended up hurting him. Biden knows that this is the last real opportunity for Trump to change the direction of the race. So he's keeping an unusually light public schedule to focus on preparing and making his answers as crisp as possible. In the past four days, Biden has traveled outside his home of Delaware only once. He went to North Carolina on Sunday. His surrogates have kept a robust travel schedule. Kamala Harris was in Florida on Monday, and Barack Obama is scheduled to hold his first public event for Biden of the year in Philadelphia later today. Trump has not undertaken the same kind of formal preparation as he did before the first debate. The president wants and plans to bring up Hunter Biden during the showdown on Thursday in Nashville, though some of his advisors would prefer that he focus on the economy. Biden's advisors, for their part, see little to be gained by engaging publicly in the details of Hunter Biden's alleged emails and texts beyond what they've already said. But ignoring the matter altogether is not an option either, especially if Trump focuses on it, leaving some uncertainty about how Biden will address it. In related news, the FBI notified Congress late last night that it is, quote, nothing to add at this time. To a statement made by Trump's director of national intelligence, disputing the idea that Russia orchestrated the discovery of a computer that may have belonged to Hunter Biden, the FBI sent a letter to Ron Johnson, the Republican senator from Wisconsin, a Trump ally and chairman of the Homeland Security Committee, in response to his demand for more information about the computer, following a series of reports by The New York Post, which we have not been able to independently confirm. Appearing earlier this week on Fox Business, Ratcliffe said there's no intelligence that supports the idea that the Hunter Biden laptop was part of a Russian disinformation campaign. The FBI is in a tough spot here, and the letter explains that they're very mindful of the severe backlash they faced in 2016 for handling the Hillary Clinton email investigation and they want to avoid the kind of criticism that was heaped upon it by the justice department's inspector general among others for the FBI's decision to notify Congress less than 2 weeks before the election that it had reopened its investigation. And going into this home stretch, Biden's campaign has 3 times as much cash on hand as Trump's does. Biden's campaign committee entered October with just over 180 million bucks compared with Trump's 63 million, according to federal filings made public overnight. It's a dramatic reversal in financial resources from a few months ago, and the latest data show that at least 31.4 million people nationwide have already voted in the general election, with at least 15.8 million of those in battleground states. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar this hump day. Number one, prospects for an economic relief package in the next two weeks dimmed markedly on Tuesday after Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell revealed that he has warned the White House not to strike any agreement with House Speaker Nancy Pelosi before the November 3rd election. In remarks at a closed-door Senate GOP lunch, which were confirmed by three sources in the room, McConnell told his colleagues that Pelosi is not negotiating in good faith with Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin and that any deal they reach could disrupt the Senate's plans to confirm Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court early next week. Republicans have voiced concerns that a stimulus deal could splinter the party and exacerbate divisions at a time when they're trying to rally behind their Supreme Court nominee. McConnell's attempted intervention came as Pelosi and Mnuchin continued negotiating over a roughly $2 trillion economic relief package. Pelosi spokesman Drew Hamill says the conversation provided more clarity and common ground and that they are moving closer to a deal. But no deal can become law without McConnell's blessing, and the Kentucky Republicans' direct warning to Trump imperils the chances of any bill becoming law in the next two weeks. McConnell said if a deal is reached and passed by the House with Trump's support, he would put it on the Senate floor at some point, but he will not commit to doing so before the election. In a Bloomberg News interview on Tuesday, Pelosi adamantly denied that she was stringing the White House along and says she wouldn't be negotiating if she didn't want and think that they could get a deal. For his part, Trump brushed aside complaints from Senate Republicans and said they'll ultimately back a package if he tells them to. Erica Werner and Jeff Stein report from Capitol Hill that many Senate Republicans are adamantly opposed to a massive new spending bill and that McConnell is not eager to hold a vote on the eve of the election that would highlight divisions within his conference. Number two, the CDC says that about two-thirds of the 300,000 excess deaths in 2020 are from COVID-19 and the rest are from other causes. New federal data show the virus has taken a disproportionate toll on Latinos and African-Americans, which we've known. But government researchers also found, more surprisingly, that the contagion has struck particularly hard for 25 to 44 year olds. Lenny Bernstein reports that their excess death rate is up 26.5% over previous years, the largest change for any age group. It's not clear whether that spike is caused by the shift in COVID deaths toward younger people between May and August or deaths from other causes. Perhaps some young people haven't gone to the hospital because they didn't want to get COVID, but then they got sick. The United States continues to be in the midst of another sharp increase in new infections. This one continues to be centered in the upper Midwest and Plain states. The seven-day national rolling average of new cases, considered the most accurate barometer, is near 60,000 per day. At least 220,000 of our fellow Americans have died so far of COVID, and a new projection says the total is likely to reach 400,000 by the end of the year. Although in a glimmer of good news, two fresh peer-reviewed studies show a sharp drop in mortality rates among COVID patients, the drop is seen in all groups, including older patients and those with underlying pre-existing conditions. This suggests that physicians are getting better at helping patients survive when they get the illness. But in a sad reminder that the unpleasantness will last a while longer, Washington, D.C. announced that next year's National Cherry Blossom Festival Parade is being canceled. The city says it's clear that it will not be safe by next spring to go ahead with the normal festivities. Number three. The New York Times continues to dine out on those Trump tax returns that they obtained. A news story looks at previously unreported Trump financial dealings with the Chinese, including the regime itself. Trump spent a decade unsuccessfully pursuing projects in China, operating an office there during his first run for president, and forging a partnership with major government-controlled companies. And the Times reveals that Trump maintains, to this day, a bank account in China. The foreign accounts do not show up on Trump's public financial disclosures, where he must list personal assets. The Chinese account is instead controlled by an LLC called Trump International Hotels Management tax records show that Trump paid $189,000 in taxes to the Chinese government while pursuing licensing deals there from 2013 to 2015. This was at a time when he only paid a couple hundred bucks to the U.S. government for income taxes here because of claiming heavy losses and by using other tricks to evade taxes. Until last year, China's biggest state-controlled bank rented three floors in Trump Tower, a lucrative lease that drew accusations of a conflict of interest for the president. In related news, always follow the money, one of Trump's former top fundraisers pleaded guilty yesterday afternoon in federal court to acting as an unregistered foreign agent for China. Elliot Broidy admitted that he accepted millions of dollars to secretly lobby Trump himself and senior members of the administration for Chinese and Malaysian interests. In a plea deal, Brody, who helped raise millions for Trump's campaign before serving as the Republican National Committee's national deputy finance chairman, agreed to cooperate with prosecutors in exchange for a recommendation of leniency at sentencing and to forfeit $6.6 million. Spencer sue reports that Justice Department officials call Brody's secret work on behalf of the ringleader of a Malaysian government scandal and a Chinese security official a case study of how foreign governments... Influence U.S. policy while hiding behind politically influential proxies. Broidy acknowledges working for the benefit of a senior Chinese security minister to return outspoken Chinese exile Guo Wengwai to his home country from the United States. Guo is a vocal online critic of the government in Beijing. Four years later, it's a reminder that the swamp has not been drained. And that's the Daily 202 for Wednesday, October 21st. Thanks for listening. I'm James Holman. I'll talk to you tomorrow. The Daily 202 is brought to you by Cleveland Clinic and the new podcast Caring for Tomorrow. I'm Joan London, the host of the series. Please join us as we explore the challenges and solutions that are defining the future of healthcare. Look for us wherever you get your podcasts.